and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by a reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at Large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with Sigrid Nunez, whose new book is called What Are You Going Through? Yeah, both of us were talking about this earlier. It's like we both devoured this book. I read it like over the course of an evening. It is the perfect novel for right now. As we'll get into in the interview, it's it's a novel. The, the basic plot is a woman is kind of being with a friend of hers as that friend is dying of a terminal illness. And it's all about how to kind of be with the end of things and with people as they approach the end, which again, seems like so on theme with the kind of apocalyptic feelings that I've gotten about kind of where we are in the world and, and where we're headed. But she manages to rescue it with such poetic and human beauty that mm-hmm. I, I felt uplifted rather than like kind of depressed. I, I think that is actually a, a, a line in the book that even a sad piece of art, if it's, if it's beautifully done, should be uplifting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is said about a movie that the, the two friends watch. And uh, yeah, I guess death is, is always kind of on, on theme for all times, forever, um, mm-hmm. in my sure. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it's never we not all, We all experience it at some it's point. never right? not apt. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately always, always there. And um, yes, I thought this book just it was very uh, profound in the way it, it kind of grappled with that fact. And I very much enjoyed our conversation with Sigurd, so... Let's listen. Let's do it. Today we are joined by writer Sigrid Nunez. Nunez is the author of multiple novels, including The Last of Her Kind, Salvation City, Semper Susan, as well as the novel The Friend, which won the National Book Award last year. Her new book is called What Are You Going Through?, an autobiographical novel about a writer who agrees to care for a friend who is dying of cancer. The novel considers old age, illness, the families we were born into, as well as the families we create together. Thanks so much for joining us, Sigrid. Thank you for having me. So since this book deals so explicitly and movingly, I would say, with old age, I wanted to start by asking you if there was a time you can remember in your life where it first occurred to you that you were in the process of aging or that your youth had ended? I can't point to any particular time. I think that I've actually been more aware of the fact that we age and what gets lost as we age, probably than your average person. I can remember, well, I'll give you a very good anecdote. I remember bursting into tears and saying to someone, I'm 27 years old and I've accomplished nothing. So, you know, (laughs) I already felt very old then. And I have a memory, though, of feeling old at 30 the way people do when they turn 30. They, I think they exaggerate that age. But, you know, I think as a writer, because you're writing about people usually and human experience and that's so much a part of our experience, growing older. You know, not necessarily about becoming elderly or ending up in a nursing home or becoming completely frail and helpless, but just the quality of losing things as you 
grow older, losing your looks, for example. I mean, not that there aren't plenty of wonderful looking people who are older, but it's just such a common thing for people to have this feeling of regret about not having the body that they once had and the face that they once had and the sex appeal that they once had. That seems to be something that plagues women in particular in this novel. And I wonder if you think that women and men experience that aspect of aging differently. Well, I think they probably do, but I think we probably minimize how much men feel it, partly because we seem to be so acutely aware of how women feel it. You know, the reason being that there has always been so much value placed on a woman's youth and looks, and that is not Mm -hmm. necessarily true of men. But that doesn't mean that they don't feel very strongly waning strength, loss of hair, for example, which happens to so many men. That can be very traumatic for a man. And the idea of not being this virile young man anymore, I think that that's a very significant experience for a lot of men. But the thing with women is exactly that, that, you know, I have a character in my book whom I find very convincing when she says, because I was very good looking, and that was something that people responded so strongly to, as I naturally aged and naturally lost my looks, I could not help but feel that I was disappointing people. And I think that that probably does happen to a certain kind of person, which could be male or female. You know, Sigurd, one of the things that frames the book, right, and from which it, in translation, takes its title, is a quote from Simone Weil that appears in the book also, Quel est entrement, which has been translated into English as, what are you going through? Can you talk about that as kind of a frame for what is actually a rather philosophical book, meditating on the end of things, both in a personal and kind of more global scale, and what that means to you? Well, this quote, I'm not sure quite when I came across it, the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say, what are you going through? But it was a long time ago that I came across it. And, (laughs) you know, and it isn't a very beautiful essay that she wrote, which can be found in her book, Waiting for God. And it just seemed to me to be a very profound statement. So this idea of asking that question and being a listener you know, became an important idea for the book. Now, it isn't always so serious. The narrator of my book describes certain encounters she has where people tell her, without her asking in most cases, what they're going through, or she's eavesdropped on somebody talking about something they're going through. And in some cases, it's something that is not what most people would call all that serious, though it is causing pain to the speaker. And at the other end of the scale, this old friend of hers is going through the most extreme situation. She has a diagnosis of terminal cancer. She probably would not live out another year, she's been told, and she's contemplating what it means to die and also considering and then deciding that she wants to choose her own time to die so she gets hold of these euthanasia drugs. So that's really where, you know, what the idea for me was. I didn't really plan it out. I always had that title, so I must have had some idea about it. But I really just sort of began writing and then having my narrator meet this person and that person. She starts out by being in a certain 
town, not where she lives, not her hometown, to visit this friend in the hospital. But it isn't until the middle of the book that the friend makes this request of her that she go away with her while the friend does whatever last things she needs to do and then takes the drug. One of the things that's interesting is that kind of, we have a perfunctory way of asking this question. And this is so perfunctory that it's a cliche, right? Like, how's it going? And the reality is you really, you ask this because you feel obliged to, but you don't really want to hear how the other person is doing, which is why when someone tells us that things are not going well, we definitely don't want to hear that. So I wonder if part of the book is also about what our ethical duty is to others to actually listen to that. And why do you think we resist doing that? Well, that's exactly why Simone Weil said what she said, because she calls that being able to ask that question, and of course, by implication, to sit there and listen to the answer, what true love of one's neighbor means. Now, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, I think we would all agree that the better thing to do, the higher thing to do, of course, is to be good to one another and to listen to one another's pain and help as much as one can. And often the best that you can do for somebody is just to listen because you're not able to make the pain go away or to change the life circumstances. If someone has just lost someone very important to them, you can't bring that person back for them. You can listen. I do think it's true what you said, that people don't mean it when they say, what's going on with I mean, it's just something people say, but they don't want to hear a long story about it, and they particularly don't want to hear a bad story. But I think everybody knows that it is just part of being a kind and empathetic human being to at least be able to listen to some people, if not everybody, all the time. I think it might be harder in our society to listen. And I'm not really sure what the reason for that is. But I will say that I think part of it, I mean, a clue would be that I often hear people say that if you're going to talk about what you're going through, that's what a therapist is for. And people now do like to make that distinction. This is not for me to hear, you know, this, I'm your friend, I love you, but really, you should be talking about this with your therapist, not with me. I mean, I think that's a fairly common response. I don't think it's such a great response, though. I really don't. Part of the thing is that by listening to someone's story, and the narrator in this book seems to have an extrasensory ability to garner people's stories that it's so acute, she even hears the past of a cat that she comes into contact with. She's almost like a radio transmitter for the stories of other people, but that part of listening to other people's stories is then there's some implied action and that the person is drawn into the story of someone else, this pathos of someone else's life. And that can be a really difficult position. In terms of the narrator of this book, her friend asks her to do something that in some ways, she does her friend an enormous service, but it takes its toll on her. I wonder how you saw the narrator's position in the book as having to go through this with her friend and just being so receptive to other people, if that is almost a difficulty for her. Well, in certain cases, she's completely passive. She really is just listening. 
And then she's reporting it to the reader. Like she says, I went to the gym and this woman in the locker room said, and then she tells her story. It's not really having a huge effect on the narrator to just listen. She does listen. She listens also, though, because she's interested. And there is a place in the book where she says, I've actually always been interested in people talking about their lives. And that she believes the famous playwright who said, there are no boring people, really. Not if you listen to them. But you might have to listen for a really long time. Now, most people don't believe that. But I do believe that, and I think part of the reason I believe that is because I'm a writer. Now, in the case of the friend who makes this huge request, you know, there are various things. For one thing, it's illegal, so she's putting herself in some potential danger there, but she doesn't seem to be that concerned with that. But it is true that she, I mean, she doesn't say yes right away, then she does say yes, then she has doubts, and she expresses those doubts. Then she's in denial. She goes to the house with the woman, but she thinks, well, I don't know that she's actually going to take those drugs. I happen to know that most people who get a hold of euthanasia drugs do not end up taking them, which is true. And then she thinks, maybe we'll just be here and my friend will change her mind. Maybe that's what she's going to do while she's here. Think about it, change her mind, and we'll go home. So that's this period of denial she goes through. And then there's a certain point where Her friend has done a lot of talking about herself, and the narrator is riveted by this talk, by this intense talk of this person who's at the end of her life and planning to take her own life. And at another point, the friend says, you must be so sick of hearing me talk. And the narrator thinks, in fact, I'm so riveted, it almost feels obscene how much I want to hear. And then at another point, she realizes that for all the doubts she had about being the person to be there for this person during this time, she would not have missed it for the world and nothing could tear her away. And that's because she's aware of having an extremely rich experience during this time. She will even describe it as one of the saddest and yet one of the happiest times of her life partly because of the intensity of feeling. You know, I wrote a book about a woman who served for a year as a nurse in Vietnam, a very young woman and saw terrible things and it was a terrible time. And after she came back, one of her great difficulties in life was she missed that year because nothing in her life would ever live up to the intensity of that year and what it meant to be in that position, taking care of these people who were so wounded, watching people die over and over, being the last person that the dying soldier saw. It reminds me of that a little bit. And so although she, I mean, it takes its toll, of course, but I think that it, as I said, it's really important that she understands that her life has been seriously enriched by this experience and that it's been a privilege to go through it. And the other thing that she thinks is that she, it's in a book that she reads and she thinks how true it is that in its intensity, watching a person die is, is a lot like falling in love. In a related way, I mean, obviously the core kind of plot of the novel 
is about facing the end and in all the density and complexity that you're describing from a personal standpoint, the narrator's friend's impending death. But it also what creeps in from the sides is a sense of a more global or existential kind of ending of things, right? And this creeps in both from kind of as the narrator is consuming news reports about like how the nation is falling apart, her, you know, dissatisfaction with the current administration and how we've come to this kind of end game. And then also through the voice of her ex, who I increasingly found myself identifying with, who has a very fatalist view. And people don't like the fact that he's going around giving talks about how everything is over, there's nothing we can do, I won't take any questions, that it's too late, that we've already crossed the threshold. Can you talk about, A, whether or not you kind of think we are at an end of things, and also kind of where you were drawing the ex's perspective from? Well, the ex's perspective, which really comes on very, very early in the novel, is a common one to any number of people. Now, one of the last things that I read was the environmentalist Bill McKibben saying, we don't have a lot of time, and if Donald Trump gets a second term, we won't have the time at all. It'll yeah. be over. We just cannot afford that. The likelihood of having a climate change denier, I mean, just the idea that the country elected a climate change denier to begin right. with. And also, I share with the ex this idea that we can't save the planet if it's going to be overrun by right-wing governments. We can't lose democracy and save the planet. That's just not going to happen. So it is right. like this double threat that's going on, the, the rise of fascist regimes. I mean, if that's what happens, then we're all lost. So I feel like I share this worry with just about everyone I know. And it is frightening, and that's a mild word for it. But the thing is that also for my narrator's friend who's dying, she says, and I certainly would feel the same, that hard enough, yes, of course, she has terminal cancer, her life is going to end, but a great consolation would be the idea that, yes, I've had my time and I'm, my time is ending, but the world is going to go on, world without end, infinitely rich, right. infinitely beautiful. She said, if you take that away, there's no consolation. She says, you would think maybe it would be okay. You think, okay, well, it's not so terrible to die because, of course, it's all going up in smoke anyway. But she said, no, you feel just the opposite, just the opposite. And that, I think, is also a very strong feeling. And I remember people having this feeling after 9-11. You know, I think people forget that now because we've been overwhelmed by the pandemic and other terrors. But a lot of people thought it was the end of the world. It was going to be the end of the world then because there would be, you know, some kind of nuclear event, which is, of course, still a possibility. And they thought that the terrorists would destroy us all. And again, it would be one thing if you died somehow and you knew that life was going to go on, but it was really too much to assimilate even, let alone accept that the whole world would be gone, that you wouldn't be remembered by anybody because there wouldn't be anyone to remember you, not to mention your children, your grandchildren, etc. With that all gone, it really does change the way the individual faces a terminal illness or a death coming because one is 95 years old. It really makes an enormous difference, all the difference in the world. 
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Sigrid Nunes, author most recently of What Are You Going Through? We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Joni Murphy on the line with us today. Joni's new book is called Talking Animals. It's a novel. And Joni is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Joni, what book are you going to recommend? It's called 39 Micro Lectures in Proximity of Performance, and Mm. it's by Matthew Goulish. Okay, Uh, tell us about the book. Matthew, uh, he was a professor of mine. And I read his book before I studied with him and it kind of, it moved me so much and I was kind of looking at different books to recommend. And I I think this book has, in a lot of ways, taught me how to write in a new way. So he is a member of a performance group called Every House Has a Door. Um, And before that, he was part of the group uh, Goat Island, which are both kind of cult performance groups based in Chicago. And he wrote this book that is somehow really, it has a sort of academic rigor, and yet it's also kind of biographical and aphoristic and easygoing. He talks a lot about how you read a book. I feel like when I read that book, it was like, oh, you can put anything in a book. If you can get away with it, you can you can put yourself in a book. You can put all the art you love. And you can also kind of give people performance, you know, suggestions. So it just, it's so many things and it's it's very easy to read and it kind of changes the way it gives you permission to read in a different way. So I just love it. And it's something that I've kind of come back to again and again. And I think because he has a background in performance and also writing, it kind of straddles this line that I really love. It's like a work of art and a work about art. It sounds really good. When did you first read it? I bought it in 2009, kind of in preparation to to move to Chicago, and it just was, it's so endearing and very honest. So yeah, it's been with me a long time, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to recommend it. It sounds really great. Would you tell us the title again and the author? Yes, it's called 39 Micro Lectures in Proximity of Performance, and it's by Matthew Goulish. Thank you so much, Joni. Thank you. Thanks, Joni. We've been talking to Joni Murphy. Her new book is called Talking Animals. You are listening to the Large Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sigrid Nunes, author of What Are You Going Through? I actually read there was a wonderful piece in the New York Review of Books maybe in the last decade about this very thing and and saying how difficult it was to live in the present with the idea of a future that that wouldn't endure. In particular, I think, you know, for a writer, for anyone that makes art, this idea that your work will outlive you is certainly uh, thrown into question when there's no, uh, you know, there, there's no promise of, of people even reading or being able to enjoy art in the future. And and it, and it kind of creeps in a little bit with them um, at the end of the book. I feel like with the way the narrator 
expresses how she's tried to capture things in words right at the end. And I wonder if you think about that, being a writer, someone who's devoted yourself to writing books, what do you think about a world where where there are no books, where people can't read because they're running for their lives and, and there's no time for art anymore? Well, what's there to say? It's It's just so overwhelming. You just don't really know what to think. Let me say the, the thing with the ex, though, the problem there, and there is a problem there, is that he's completely negative. He has no hope at all. And he says it's over. There's whoever gets a second term, it, it's over. It's too late and so on. He has a kind of arrogant attitude towards it. He's very hostile. Now, of course, we understand mm-hmm. why he's hostile. There's every reason to be hostile. But his attitude works against you know, anybody really listening to him in the way that would matter. I mean, he even says he's only doing it because he doesn't really know why he's doing it since there's no hope and there's no future and so on. But he he does say that, you know, he has these two little grandchildren and he just, he wants to have something to say when they are old enough to say, well, what did you do? Where were you? That's the most meaningful thing he can think of that he wants them to forgive him. But he himself is forgiving no one for mm. what's happened, including himself. So I think it's all, yes, it's, I mean, it's, and you know, I wrote this book, I finished this book last summer, last September, actually. So it's not that long ago. And the book on the first page, it says, it was the third week of September 2017. And then the book takes about, covers about a period of a year. So, you know, then it's what, X months la- later, we have this pandemic, which has, completely changed the way everybody feels about everything and another threat to mortality and a sense of terror and and something out of control and something that we don't know even if there is a vaccine and i think there, there will be but you know we're being told this is the beginning of a new phase for us this is not going to be the last pandemic how much more can be piled on to people how much more are we expected to take and try to live our lives and, and be future-oriented in some sense. We're surrounded by little people. We're surrounded by children. We have to be thinking about their future. People are putting away money so that their children can go to college. That's 20 years away or whatever. So, yeah, it's a, and, and it is true. I mean, we're not exaggerating the terrors, that's for sure. It really is a, a frightening, frightening, frightening time. But we're also not exaggerating the problem. You know, it isn't just, I, every once in a while, somebody will say, but haven't people always thought, haven't right. people always yeah. thought that, you know, and, and then I jokingly say, yes, and they were right. <laughs> 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 you see, they were absolutely right. Yeah. It's, well, it's, can you, uh, just as a, as a follow-up on this, I mean, there's, especially towards the end of the novel, there's a lot of thinking about writing as both, a, a kind of it, uh, reviewing its its impossibilities, right? The difficulty of capturing things in language, the kind of frustration of that gap between like the real and its representation. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like how you think about writing in the face of such kind of catastrophes, right? Not only within the novel, but in the ways that you're just describing, right? Like what does writing do in the face of such things as a both like an act in the present but also something that hopes in the way we were talking about before for some 
future in which it might be read, in which it might have some kind of reception or make some kind of difference maybe is too large, but you get what I'm saying. I do. I don't think of it anymore in terms of the future, but there are other reasons for that. I mean, I think that there was a time a long time ago, I'm not sure when this particular time ended, but there was a time when people would write and think that they were going to be read in 50 years or a hundred years. And of course they assumed that life would be, you know, there'd still be a a culture, a, a globe, everything. But I think as of uh, a, a certain recent times, I, I think it's a little bit foolish for a writer to think about being read in 50 to 100 years' time, even if by some miracle we get through all these frightening threats. And the reason is there are too many people writing. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, <laughs> people, people, right, people are going to want to, they're not going to want to read people who wrote 50 years ago, they're going to want to read, well, maybe maybe some, I mean, maybe they'll still be reading Shakespeare. I don't know. But the point is, we're talking about fiction, novels, etc. They're going to want to be reading, if they read anything, the novels of their time or the recent past. That's what I think. I think that the culture will change in that way. And then there'll be all these other things they care about, like movies, like visual art and so on. So I think this idea of that you might have had as a, as a uh, you know, Faubert might have had or the Victorian novelist might have had about the future of your work. It's just something that the contemporary writer doesn't, doesn't really think about. And at least certainly not in the same way. So for me, it's always, it's about the present. And as far as that goes, you know, as somebody put it to me, I don't know which part of all these many threats we were talking about, and she said, yes, but we writers, we have our work. We have our work and we have to do our work. It doesn't matter what's going on outside there. Just like mm. the school child has to go to school and do their homework. They don't just say, oh, but the world is, out. you know, that's what you do. This is your work. And I thought that was, you know, very well put. So it's something, this is what you do. This is who you are. You don't just stop doing it. You do it. And of course, it's changed by all these things that are happening. But it's something that you should be doing for that reason. If you should be doing it at all, then you should be doing it in spite of what's happening. But I'd, I'd like to also say there's the, there's the point where, you know, this is very much like the X, the, the kind of thing that he would say. He says to the narrator, if every poet sat down today and wrote a poem about climate change, it would not save one tree. Right. And to which I do not say in my book, but to which I say, it is not the poet's job to save trees. Mm. It's the poet's job to write poetry. That's fair. Maybe the most unsettling thing to me in um, the various depictions of, you know, ways of growing old and kind of the complications of, you know, someone's quote unquote golden years, you know, besides losing your looks, losing your health to me, was kind of losing your attachment to your work. And there are various examples in the book of people who, you know, studied literature their whole lives and suddenly are rereading books at the end of their lives and finding them meaningless. That their attachment to art and what it can do for them has completely changed. And um, I guess, you know, as someone who, who puts so much emphasis on 
you know, my own relationship to, to art and to literature and find so much comfort in that, that that could possibly drop out is, was very um, disturbing to me. And I, I, just, I wondered if that's something that you see a lot among people that you know, that that is something that goes, a relationship, a strong relationship to art, if that's something you've experienced at all yourself. I do think that that happens to a lot of people. They lose interest in things or their interest becomes and their tastes become narrower and narrower. Uh, like they used to read all the new fiction that came out and then they realized they were kind of bored by that. But they still read. They still choose things in a different way. You could say they're, they're pickier or they but but mostly it's about not being as broad uh, I do think that that's not necessarily a sign of our times. I think that, that that is something that comes with age and that it's not necessarily terrible because you, you do have less time and you do know better what will work for you, what will feed you, what will nourish you. And there's a lot out there that is not really you know, something that you, you feel that you need. Now, this is why I loved, love Susan Sontag because she was the one person I knew who, she was the complete opposite. I mean, to the end of her life, no matter what was happening, including cancer and all the work she had to do and lots of sad things that happened in her life and being incredibly busy, all these things and getting older just like everyone else, she never lost her extraordinarily broad interest in everything. She didn't want to miss anything. She just, she, she was exactly the same in old age as she was. She wasn't that old. She, she, she died when she was like 72, but she, but she was exactly the same as when she was young. And she just, you know, she wanted to, to go everywhere and see everything and read every book and go to the ballet every night and go to the two movies a day. And, you know, she just, she always retained that, curiosity about everything and that passion for art and literature but uh, but that's what made her uh, so extraordinary I, I don't i don't know anyone else like that and i just want to say and okay. that's that's what kept her forever young she was incredibly young in spirit and mentally in every way but physically she was she stayed so young and that's why no i did not know her at the end of her life at all I knew her when she was in her 40s and I was in my 20s for a time. And then I continued to see her and know her somewhat uh, over a period of years. But at the very end of her life, I, 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 was, I did not know her at all. You know, as, as you talk about this, and I specifically think about you talking, uh, sharing the story about a friend who kind of went out every night, you know, never lost this like commitment to art. So much of that and so much of the kind of beauty of this book is about perso personal engagement, right? Like being with someone else in a physical, like, you know, IRL in real life way that seems to me like so far from our experience of the present where we all feel because of the pandemic, all are incredibly isolated, where we are in many ways cut off, for example, from public forms of art, from performance, from going to the movies, for example, right? We can stream, everything is done in isolation though. And it seems to me that so much of the power and the presence of your book and your other writing is about 
being in relation in person, right? Actually being with someone else, i.e. not necessarily being isolated. Though you do talk about aloneness as in, in this book as something that is powerful itself. Do you think that those kind of possibilities for engagement are curtailed by the conditions of the pandemic? Or is that just something that we need to imagine a new way to find and sustain those intimacies? Well, I think people have done a pretty terrific job of finding ways to connect through this and and starting from the very beginning. But I don't think it can go on. I I think, uh, you know, I just, just the idea of being isolated, not being able to see people, because I think that a lot of people could go through that for quite a while, as long as they had their computer, their telephone, meeting distantly or whatever. But this idea of whole chunks of of culture sinking under the water, like uh, what will I will I never be in Carnegie Hall again? That was mm-hmm. one of the last things I I did before lockdown. And then one of my favorite places it, ever is the Film Forum Movie Theater in in Manhattan downtown. Yeah. I remember the last movie I saw there, Corpus Christi, it was called. The idea of not being able to to go back there on a regular basis or into the movies or, I mean, these things, I just, I try not to think about it because it just, I mean, I, you know, I, I have a friend who said, well, then life will not be worth living. So it was very easy for her to say that because it does feel that way. And these are things that you do with other people. I'm somebody who, who doesn't want to stream movies. I have no interest in that, really. I want to go to the movies. I want to go to the theater and sit in the dark with other people and watch a movie. I'm very old-fashioned that way. I, it's about that experience. So, yeah, the, the, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I mean, it has, I do think a great comfort for me has been spending a lot more time in parks, I'm not in the country, but a lot of people have been going to the country. But in the city, you know, in the parks, I'm with people. Uh, They're strangers for the most part. Lots of dogs and dog walkers or whatever. Lots of people doing their exercise, sometimes with personal trainers. And that lifts up my spirits because because I'm seeing I'm with people and, and we're in the same environment. We're all in the same park. But yeah, it's it's going to become quite frightening if we don't you know, get control of this virus and get that vaccine soon. Because I don't, I just think, you know, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg as far as the damage that this might be doing to 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 our, our society. You know, I think something about this book is the tension between wanting to have a certain kind of death, wanting to, and, and part of that being having a death um, on your own terms, and, um, you know, that, that this is an experience that should be not chosen for you, but, but that you should choose for yourself and, and having, you know, a, a beautiful death. And that's, that's what the narrator's friend wants. And I think in some ways, what I, it, although it's a little unclear at the end exactly what happens, it, it seems to me partly because of being with her friend and having this very, very profound connection, that, that's kind of what she gets Oh, I wonder if you've given any thought to an ideal circumstance, um, as maybe it's a morbid question, but an ideal circumstance for, for a way that, you know, you would, you would like to go, um, if that's something you've thought about and maybe thought about in writing this book. Well, I think to some extent, 
it's a, I, I, you know, I probably share that with everybody. People always say, well, I want to die in my sleep. I mean, every people are, o- o- always say that. I want, to, I want to have my 80 or whatever it is, years that I'm supposed to have, and then die in my sleep, you know, not in any pain, still having all my marbles and all my uh, strength, and then just not waking up one morning. And some people do die like that. But this idea that she has about, wanting to die, wanting to die in peace and with order and uh, with control, you know, actually turns out to be an illusion. When you're dying, you're not dead. You haven't experienced death. You're living. You're still living. And you're still dealing with life. And yeah, I think there's a a tendency to believe, um, and I suppose writers would probably believe this more than anyone, but other people too, that your, your life story, there, there's a narrative there. You know, there's a, there's a shapely narrative there or there's a narrative that you can shape. And so it, it, you can put a certain kind of ending on it that is aesthetically right. This is why I have in the book this comedy of errors that happens, you know, that she has all these plans, this is going to happen and then life gets in the way life is messy and continues to be messy. So you can't really, I don't think you can have a beautiful death or a, a, I, I think that's just an illusion. You know, it's death has the last word. Death will die as death sees fit for you to die. And so it isn't something, uh, I mean, that's why I do quote the, the Jules Renard, death is not an artist, you know, <laughs> And you can't make death an artist uh, and you can't make dying, you know, a, a tidy story with, a, with the, just the right details and ending. And because of that, I don't really think about what would be a good death. Like everybody else, I just think that we, we have a lot of problems with the way we face the end, uh, you know, the way we, you know, all these medical resources that go into keeping a dying person alive in a very unpleasant place, the hospital. But like everyone else, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, we don't want, as my, my character, the reason why she wants to take the euthanasia drugs is because she feels like if you're in so much pain, you can't have thoughts. You can't, you can't think about anything because all you can think about, like, like an animal, is, is the pain. And that's the thing that she is, is most afraid of. And I think that that's, you know, very reasonable. That's certainly what I'm afraid of, is this, the suffering that comes with dying. And the, you know, this, her, her fear of um, coming to a point where she can't do anything for herself anymore. So she's in a hospice, let's say, and she can't do anything. She doesn't see the point in that if she's been told that her situation is hopeless and that, you know, she's, you know, she is going to die no matter what. She gets this idea in her head that, that she can take things, in, you know, into her own hands. But whether she actually really can do that is, is a little, you know, I leave that open at the end. So I think we'll end it there at the end of things, as it were. Um, thank you so much, Sigrid, for joining us. We've been speaking to Sigrid Nunez, author most recently of What Are You Going Through? Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Sigrid Nunez, author of What Are You Going Through? Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. (music) 
Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.